Civil War. <laughs> Do you mean 1861 or 2022? Since the summer of 2020, increased racial tension and violent rioting left many on the internet whispering about an impending civil war. But this may not just be another conspiracy or clickbait. In fact, while we haven't seen a civil war since the 1860s, it is fairly common around the globe. Since World War II, there have been over 250 civil wars. Experts on the topic estimate that one in five nations have experienced at least 10 years of civil war. They also say that the cause for civil wars are primarily economic and not grievance-based. And the U.S. economy is far from stable right now. Someone who has seen civil war up close says it's not looking good. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and former war correspondent for the New York Times. Even before the summer of racial rioting, he said, quote, These days are the good times as compared to what's coming next. How the U.S. is living in deja vu of its antebellum days. That's next on The Deep Cut. A pandemic, racial tensions, mass rioting, a crippled economy, supply chain interruptions, a capital protest, gas shortages, meat shortages, electric grid shutdown, a border crisis, multiple cyber attacks, a bitter election, and the potential for nuclear war. In a little over two years, America has managed to compile quite the highlight reel. It may not have muskets and drummer boys, but a civil war is coming. Chris Hedges has been warning that America is mirroring the ethno-political violence he witnessed when covering the Yugoslavian Civil War. Just a few years ago, he said, quote, A society can change so quickly because the underlying structures are rotten. There is the patina or the veneer of a functioning system, but the foundations of it are so decayed that they can't take the stress. That was true in the Weimar Republic in Germany before the Nazis took full control. That was true in Yugoslavia before the Civil War and ethnic violence. It is true here in the United States, too. Our government has gone from a republic by the people and for the people to a complete cacistocracy, which is a government ruled by the least suitable or competent citizens of the state. While many will laugh it off and say it's looking like the movie Idiocracy, it's much more serious. At least in the movie, the fighting was confined to a stadium. In 2022 America, it's in the streets, suburbs, and the shopping malls. These are the seven indicators that a civil war is approaching. Section 1. Rival Economies As the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And America is no exception to that principle. The South didn't see blacks as people, but they certainly saw them as money. Consider this excerpt from historian and Yale professor David Blight. By 1860, there was more millionaires, slaveholders all, living in the lower Mississippi Valley than anywhere else in the United States. In the same year, the nearly 4 million American slaves were worth some $3.5 billion, making them the largest single financial asset in the entire U.S. economy, worth more than all manufacturing and railroads combined. The South's economic impact was huge, and that gave them hegemonic power in the Union, but slavery was all they had. In the lead-up to the war, the North was looking to flip this paradigm. They were looking to impose their ideals, specifically abolishing slavery, on the South. And by aligning with the West, the North was able to form a coalition that would diminish the South's influence on the Union. The North did this in four ways. First, with the Homestead Act of 1860. The North wanted to give 160 acres of land to settlers. 
disfavored family farming, causing the South to fear it would limit large plantations and slaveholders that wanted to settle. It passed with only one vote from the South before being vetoed by President Buchanan. Second, after the Erie Canal opened in 1823, the North also started pitching the need for transportation improvements. The South didn't need much improvement, so these federal subsidies would go mostly to the North. By 1860, the North was lobbying for the Pacific Railway Bill, a proposal to build a transcontinental railway link to, you guessed it, the West Coast. The bill failed as no major slaveholding Southern district voted for it. Third, the South was primarily agricultural, so they needed to import a lot of goods. The North wanted to protect their goods against cheap British imports. The North pushed for higher tariffs that the South viewed as protectionist. Again, the North teamed up with the West to try and get their way in spite of Southern interests. The West needed transportation improvements and tariffs were the federal government's main source of revenue. The West eventually acquiesced and agreed to a moderate tariff. This both protected foreign imports for the North while providing funds for federal projects in the West. Fourth, the North contained 60% of all banks, giving them a significant advantage if the federal government created a national bank, which was a hot topic at the time. The South didn't need local banking. The West wasn't keen on the idea of a national bank either, believing all the eastern banks would exert too much influence. However, they desperately needed local banking to finance new crops and sided with the North. The National Banking System Bill in 1860 ultimately failed when southern states refused to back it. The North didn't always get their way, but they were still nipping at the South's heels, always finding ways to marginalize them, threatening their economy and way of life. As James Huston in the Journal of Southern History stated, quote, Northerners recognized that, by means of a national market, the effects of the Southern labor system could be transmitted to the North, depress the wages of its free laborers, and thereby upset its economy. Northerners, therefore, felt compelled to constrict the effects of slavery. By the same token, Southerners, who had placed vast amounts of wealth in slaves, opposed any restrictions upon their property rights. But how does this play out today? Well, in this post-pandemic world, we're seeing a similar economic standoff. It's called essential versus non-essential. In the beginning of the Great Lockdown, states began defining the contours of the new economy. Big chain stores and franchises won out. Walmart, Target, and Amazon were all allowed to keep their jobs and businesses running. But local restaurants, mom-and-pop stores, or boutiques were not. You see, one day the government decided they just weren't essential. After the pandemic began, the world's over 2,000 billionaires saw their collective wealth rise by $4 trillion, an increase of 54%. But a lot of Americans didn't do so well. 58 to 68% of the leisure, hospitality, food services, construction, and retail industries saw layoffs or a reduction of hours. The accommodations and food services industry was still down over 15% even a year after the initial lockdown. But the dividing line of the pandemic isn't just between the billionaires and everyone else. 
It also pits professional workers versus trade workers. Nearly half of the U.S. workforce began working from home full-time during the pandemic, but this favors those in generally white-collar office roles who only need a phone and a computer. These workers not only got to keep their job, they got to save money. The average remote worker saves around $4,000 a year, saving on commute, wardrobe, and lunches. This doesn't even begin to cover savings in childcare. Pre-Civil War, the North tried to put the economic squeeze on the South to achieve its ideals of ending slavery. Now the government is pitting half the country against the other half, squeezing one economically to achieve their lockdown goals. It's simple. Just comply with everything that they say or the lockdown will never end. The instances may be separated by 160 years, but the tactics are the same. The government has and will continue to use economic warfare aimed at its own citizens to achieve its goals. Historian Richard Brown has noted that, quote, without attempting to prove that modernization caused a civil war, one may argue that it was very much the conflict of a modernizing society. In 1860, two different economies were trying to blend together. Today, one economy is fracturing into two economies. The North was upgrading society for noble intentions, ending slavery. Today, the government is creating a new normal that is less than noble, preparing us for the Great Reset. We can see that today as the trucker convoy descends on Washington, D.C. The elite class is mandating rules on vaccines for blue-collar workers. This tends to appease professionals in office jobs who believe they know better than those who aren't college-educated or who work in labor jobs. However, it's still a dividing line that benefits one side of society while placing an onus on the other. One believes that their health is dependent on someone else's compliance, and the other feels their right to bodily autonomy shall not be infringed. As friction between the North and the South brewed during the 1860s, talks of succession began to take hold. We can see that today as the trucker convoy descends on Washington, D.C. The elite class is mandating rules on vaccines for blue-collar workers. This tends to appease professionals at office jobs who believe they know better than those who aren't college-educated or people who work in labor jobs. However, it's still a dividing line that benefits one side of society while placing an onus on the other. One believes their health is dependent on someone else's compliance, and the other feels their right to bodily autonomy shall not be infringed. This deep-cut series, Are We About to Enter Civil War?, will continue next Saturday. Tune in for Part 2 on the brink of succession.